thank you that you've called us your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that as your word is preached tonight, you would give us hearts, minds, and wills that are obedient, uh, that long to hear you speak. Even if it's a hard message, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would love you more and understand you more and rejoice more in our Savior. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please grab a seat. Am I on here? Yep. Uh, please go your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 7. It's on page 651. If you're new tonight, we're working right through Amos. Amos is an Old Testament prophet. It's quite a, um, a hard book to preach on, a hard book to, uh, to hear. But I want to begin tonight by telling you about a guy called Hugh Latimer. You may have heard of him. Uh, he lived in the 1500s in the UK. Uh, in the year 1555, Hugh Latimer was dragged out to a place in Oxford and he was uh, burnt at the stake. Uh, Latimer was a superb preacher. He preached the Bible. Uh, Latimer was, had a passion for social justice. He fought, fought, and fought for the poor and the marginalized and the needy. He preached the gospel. He had a passion for social justice and yet... Yet he was killed. He was killed by the church, by the religious institutions. Uh, Same with uh, John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was in prison for 12 years. He was in prison by the institution. They didn't like what he was preaching, what he was teaching. And friends, down the centuries, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, even today, are imprisoned and persecuted, and yes, martyred for their faith. Because they stand up for truth. And they preach truth, including God's judgment, and sin, and yes, hell. And when you read the Bible, the Apostle Paul says to young Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel, just preach the word. And the author to the Hebrews says the word of God is sharper than a a double-edged sword. It kind of gets into your skin. And sometimes it comforts you and other times it challenges you. And sometimes it offers you a word of healing and a word of hope. And sometimes it's just a word that's very hard to stomach. But whether it's a, a comforting word or a challenging word, we're just called to preach the word. And yeah, it's easy to preach the word. I, I love preaching when I get to preach about God's love and God's compassion and God's mercy and God's grace and reconciliation. They're great things to preach on. But what about when the Word of God talks about sin and judgment and hell? What do you do then? See, it's easy to, easy to grow a, a megachurch. You just tell people all the time that God loves them and God will give them everything that they want and need. But that's not, that's not just what the Bible says. Yeah, God is a God of love and grace and compassion and mercy, but he's also a God of justice and a God who hates sin and a God who will punish sin. It was T.S. Eliot who said, uh, humankind cannot bear very much reality. We can't bear very much reality. Well, how do you go with the reality of God's judgment? That's the big question for tonight. There's a temptation, I think, in churches and amongst Christians just to be quiet about God's judgment. 
It's just best, best just not talk about it because if we talk about God's judgment, we seem to be extremist or, or narrow or hardline. And so just shh, just say nothing. Let's talk about God's love and God's mercy and God's compassion. And all this talk about hell, it's a bit, it's a bit scaremongerish, isn't it? Except, friends, that Jesus talked about hell. And Jesus talked about hell a lot. Uh, 95% of the times the word hell is used in the New Testament, it comes from the lips of Jesus. Because he loved people. He loved them enough to warn them about hell. And Amos loved people and loved them enough to warn them about judgment and hell. I'm sure he didn't enjoy talking about judgment. None of us do. I don't. Uh, But God had given Amos a word and he had to talk about it. And it was interesting, in the time of Amos' day, who was it that didn't like the message? Who was it that tried to shut up Amos? I'll tell you who. The church. The institution. Uh, Look in there at chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, Amaziah is the priest of Bethel. He's like the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the one who's been set aside to lead the people and to preach the word. And I'm sure that Amaziah wore all the priestly garments, but he's acting more like a politician than a priest because he won't let Amos preach the word and he won't let others listen to the word. Look what he says. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel and the land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. It's interesting. If, if you don't want people to, to preach, what do you do? You, you kind of twist the message. That's what, that's what Amaziah does. Verse 11, he says that Amos is preaching, Jeroboam the king will die by the sword. That's not what Amos is saying. Just look at the top of the page. The very first line of the page, with my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam, against the kingship, the dynasty of Jeroboam. But he just twists it enough to make it more personal. And then he attacks the messenger. Twist the message, attack the messenger. Verse 12, Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Get away. Go back to the land of Judah, to your hometown. Earn your bread there because you're just in it for the money, Amos. Do your prophesying there. I don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. But Amos, he's a man of integrity. He says, verse 14, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd and I took care of sycamore fig trees. But God, the Lord, took me from tending flock and God gave me this message, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say don't prophesy against Israel and stop preaching. See, Amos has received a message, and he will preach the message. Amos is not in preaching and ministry for the money or the reputation or for the self-glory. He just wants to be obedient to God and grow as disciples of God. And isn't that the situation we find ourselves in today? God has spoken to us. God has given us a message. It's called here, the scriptures. He's spoken through the prophets. He's spoken through his son. It's recorded and preserved for us in his word. And he's warned us against sin and judgment and, yes, hell. And it's written down here. God has warned us. God has told us that those who don't believe in Jesus will face everlasting punishment. And God has told us to repent and to believe the gospel and to, to shelter under the blood of Jesus at Calvary 
to, to, to put your trust in Jesus. So on that last day, you'll have life, not death. And God has told us, yes, he's compassionate and merciful, but he must punish sin, and there will be a day of judgment. And so the question for us is, will we talk about it? And will we warn people? And even when the institution or the church or organized religion try to stop us, will we keep warning people? Because it's the most loving thing to do. A friend of mine is a minister of a church in London. He wrote a course called Christianity Explored. It's an eight-week course with a weekend away in the middle. He invited a friend to go and do that course. And a friend came to the first week and a friend came to the second week. And they went out for a drink after the second week. And the friend turned to Rico and he said this. He said, I'm not going to come back for week three. And Rico said to him, look, yes, tonight we talked about sin and we talked about judgment, but but please come back to week three because week three is all about the cross and all about God's mercy and all about God's love. And he said, no, the reason I'm not coming back for week three is not because of what was said tonight. The reason I'm not coming back for week three is that you've called yourself my friend for the last 15 years and you never told me about sin and judgment and hell before. You said you loved me and you never told me this before. Friends, we've got to warn people. And that's what we're going to hear tonight, a message about God's judgment, not, not a, as a, a scaremonger tactic. It's the most loving thing we can do, talk about God's judgment, so that we can feel the full extent and weight of God's attitude towards wrongdoing. And we can see God's wrath rightly, uh, not as a fit of temper, but as a right, loving, fair, just punishment for wrongdoing. And we can, we can feel the heart of God who's pleading with us, who's patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to eternal life. Amos had five visions. We've had the five oracles, and now we've got five visions. Let me clarify, a vision, a vision isn't seeing what is not there. It's not seeing what is not there. A vision is when you do see what is there, but other people can't see it yet. Does that make sense? You see what's, what is there, but other people haven't seen it yet because God has revealed it to you. And that's what we're going to hear tonight, these visions. So I'm going to invite uh, Ian and Sam forward, and we're going to listen to Amos chapter 7 and 8. It's on page 651 in your Bibles. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the second crop was coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. 
Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer, go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then hear the word of the Lord. You say do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of Isaac. Therefore this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up and you yourself will die in a pagan country and Israel will certainly go into exile away from their native land. And this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy of a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of, all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria or say, As surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Bathsheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. Let me give you uh, four points tonight about God's judgment and then one message of hope. God's judgment is, firstly, is fair. God's judgment is entirely fair. We do deserve God's judgment. He's right to be angry at the way that we live because he's writing to God's people 
He's writing to a people, Israel, who have been bought at a price. They're precious. They're treasured possessions. They've been given the law. Uh, they've been told to live differently, but they're no different from the world. The way that these people lived then was no different from the world around them. And as we, the church, are God's people, bought with the, the precious blood of Jesus, and we're called to be different. Uh, but these people, Israel, were like us. Uh, verse 8, verse 4, they had no compassion. They had no compassion. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, 8, verse 4. Do you get the picture? The Israelites walked past those in need. Uh, they judged the person who walked into the building who looked different. Uh, they just grabbed a bargain of a field and uh, you know, employed the little farmer to do their dirty work for them. And the attitude was, well, I'd give them a job, you know, give them a wage. They just helped those people who could help them back. They had absolutely no compassion on those around them. Their worship is meaningless. Verse 5, they say, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell, it, sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat? Uh, you see, they went to church, they went to the temple, but they went to the mechanics of worship, but, but their hearts were in the office. You can imagine, they're sitting in church. And they've gone through the list of a thousand things they'd rather be doing. Selling shares, making money. And they're thinking all the time, oh, when's this service going to be over so I can get back to my, the real life? You know, the important things like making money and, and being successful and being popular. And God for them was just one of their hobbies that they fit into their work schedule. They had no compassion, they had no worship, they had no justice. Do you spot that 8 verse 5? They skimped the measure. They were corrupt and dishonest. They boosted the price and cheated with dishonest scales. Uh, they treated the poor with silver. They treated the poor like disposable objects they could buy and sell. And instead of fighting for justice and standing up for the oppressed and standing up for the, the sweatshop workers and refusing to buy certain goods from certain companies, uh, God's people then were so comfortable and so greedy and so worldly. And the wages they paid, the working conditions, the attitude... There was no concern for social justice at all. And if you've been with us through Amos, you're going to be thinking, oh, social justice again, here we go again. It's just a bee in Amos's bonnet. No, social justice is a passion in God's heart. God longs for his people, his church, to love those in need and to help the poor and the needy. What's the religion that God accepts as pure and faultless, according to James chapter 1? To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the word. Have you got it? God wants less of your religious performance and more of your hearts that love him and love other people. And God wants you to be less concerned with your prosperity and more concerned for justice in the world. And so here's the question. Are we any different from God's people then? No compassion hearts far away from God, no concern for the poor and needy. Because if your life centers around yourself, if you are at the center of your life, then you will start to judge everything and everyone by how they can serve you and your needs. What can I get out of spending time with this person? How can they help me? See, I, can I can confidently say that every single person here deserves God's judgment. Yeah, we might be nice and good and kind and lovely, but we're not perfect. And I think we think we don't deserve God's judgment because we don't see 
how serious our sin really is. You see, the moral standards of the world, the world has declined so much in the last 20, 30 years of, of most of our lives here that we just judge ourselves by the world standards and we're just slightly better than them. And so the language in this church and the greed and the immorality and the pornography and the clothing and the ethics and the maliciousness and the slander and the gossip, and our standards just drop, drop and drop and drop. But we don't call sin, sin. And we just think we're slightly better than the person next to us. Well, God says sin is sin. And Amos has this vision of a plumb line. A plumb line is just something that measures whether something is perfectly straight. And against a plumb line called God and God's standards, no. We deserve God's judgment. It's right and it's fair. Number two, God's judgment is it's terrifying. Let's look at these visions. Let's feel the weight of this judgment. Chapter 7, verse 1. The sovereign Lord showed me he was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as a second crop was coming up. And that means nothing to us in our 21st century Western lifestyle because we don't understand how terrifying that vision would be. You had two crops a year. Your first crop went to the king. Your second crop you depended on for your, your food and your money and everything and your life. And so if this swarm of locusts could devour your entire crop in one day, and if they devoured your crop, you're left with nothing and you would starve to death. That's how terrifying that vision is. Uh, the second vision we understand a bit better. Verse 4, uh, the sovereign law was calling for judgment by fire. We get that one because we've seen bushfires and we know how devastating they are, except this is like the Holocaust because it dried up the great deep and devoured the whole land, and no one can stand. And the third vision of the plumb line, what does God attack in this vision? Verse 9, the high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be removed, and with my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Uh, he destroys the high places and the sanctuaries. If, if they've got no place to worship, they've got no place to meet with their God. And if they've got no place for the king, they've got no order and no structure and no rule, and that's a terrifying judgment. Look at the judgment on Amaziah's family, verse 17. His wife becomes a prostitute. His kids are killed. His possessions are measured up and divided. He would die in a pagan land, and Israel will go into exile. It's all the curses of, of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And the visions just get even, even more terrifying. 8, verse 3. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. You've got this picture of bodies being tossed from doors and balconies and you walk down streets, there's just dead bodies lying everywhere. It's carnage. And then you've got the judgment of an earthquake. Chapter 8, verse 8. Will not the land tremble? And a flood, the whole land will rise like the Nile. And then you've got the, the solar eclipse in verse 9. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. If you're supposed to read these, these pictures and just be horrified at the extent of God's judgment. It's like your worst nightmare. You ever thought about how Jesus described hell? When Jesus talked about hell, he had to use picture languages. He talked about weeping and gnashing of teeth and the unquenchable fire and the outer darkness. Why did he use picture language? I think it's because words 
can't describe how terrible and how horrific hell is. We can't grasp with words just the full depth of how horrific hell is really going to be. And I don't like it, and I'm assuming you don't either, but it's a reality. It's inevitable. God's judgment is inevitable. Did you spot that? 8 verse 3. In that day declares the sovereign Lord. 8 verse 9. In that day declares the sovereign Lord. 8 verse 11. The days are coming declares the sovereign Lord. God is sovereign. His will will be done. These are not natural disasters. These aren't freak accidents. This is God doing it. Because time and time and time again, look at verse uh, 8 verse 9, I will make the sun. 8 verse 10, I will turn your religious feast. I will make you. I will do this. And you read this and you think, this is the hand of God. And there are two verses that really terrify me. 7 verse 8. He says, I will spare them no longer. End of verse 8. 8 verse 2. The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. I will spare them no longer kind of gives you the picture that they've had every chance they were going to get. He's warned them and warned them and warned them and now there's nothing more you can do. It's a bit like when you go to the doctor's surgery, you've had all the tests for cancer and, and the doctor sits down with you and says, I'm sorry, there's nothing more than we can do for you. That's the picture here. They've been warned and warned and warned and warned and there's no longer anything they can do. Friends, God's judgment did happen. Israel was destroyed. The mighty Assyrians marched on the city. They captured the people. They captured bodies and they destroyed temples and kings were killed and they went into exile. This was no empty threat. Because chapter 8, verse 7 really captures the heart of God's judgment. He says... I will never forget anything they have done. Now that's the heart of judgment, isn't it? That, that, that we are accountable to a God who will not ignore, who will not forget, who will not gloss over, who will not delete all the wrong things that we have done. Now that's a comfort. It's a comfort to know that God sees everything and knows everything. He won't gloss over it. But it's also a challenge, isn't it? It's horrific that I'm going to stand before him face to face. He'll open the book and he'll see Everything that I have done, the wrong that I have done, and the good that I haven't done. And he's warned us time and time and time again. And in Israel's day, there was another judgment. The judgment was a famine of his word. This is terrifying. 8 verse 11. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine. Not, not a famine of food, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word. But they won't find it. That's so ironic that throughout Amos, the people don't want to hear the word. And they block their ears to God's word. And God was constantly sending prophets and people trying to preach the word. And they didn't want to listen. And now they do want to listen, but they can't hear it because God has removed it. And that's a horrific judgment, isn't it? That the continual rejection of God's word leads to God withdrawing his word. That those who continue to reject God's word can't always expect that it will be available. That happened to Israel. Away from the land, no prophets, and that little word that just came in chapter 8, verse 3, silence. Silence is a horrific thing. When you long to hear news from a loved one, but you get nothing. 
where you long to talk to somebody, but it's just silence. That's the picture here, that these people are running around trying to hear from God. God, what do you mean by this? Why are you doing this, God? Speak to us, God. Speak to us, God. But he doesn't, because he's silent. And my friends, the challenge for us is we live in a city where you can walk into any church and you can hear the Bible and you can sit at your home and read your Bible and we just take that for granted. People in different parts of Australia go for hundreds of of kilometers to find a sermon preached. People in different parts of the world walk for three days to hear a sermon and they pay a month's wage to get a bit of the Bible and we just sit here and take it for granted. But can you imagine a day when, I don't know, when churches are turned into gyms and cafes and can you imagine the day when uh, uh, preachers are put in prison? And can you imagine the day when they will not hear the word of God? In many ways, it's not far away. Because we live in a nation that still ignores God. But when we think about God's judgment, we should hit, sit here in fear and in trembling. And in some ways, the right response is, is not to, to mess with a holy and righteous and just God, but to tremble at his judgment. Because there's a world out there, there's a city out there that do not know Christ. And we walk past them every day. And I know people, and you know people who don't know Christ. And this is reality, my friends. This is not make believe. This is reality. And when I'm reading these Old Testament passages, it drives me to prayer. It drives me to talk about Jesus. And it drives me just to, just to plead with people look at Jesus. Please look at Jesus. He's your hope. Because how do you read these Old Testament prophets in a way that, that, that reads it in light of Christ? We've got to read this passage in light of Christ, haven't we? This is the most helpful illustration I can find. Read it in light of these three hills, the historical hill, the Christological hill, and the eschatological hill. Just look at this passage and say, in history, was this fulfilled? And yes, it was. God did judge his people, Israel, the Assyrians came and they captured them. It has been fulfilled in history. A look at the third hill, the end time hill. Will this prophecy be fulfilled at the end times? Of course it will. God has told us time and time and time again that there's going to be a day when he will judge the world and it's called hell. Hell, a place where the fire never goes out and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's why in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the rich man who's in hell pleads with Father Abraham, send someone to my brothers, please go and warn them. Uh, and, and he says, well, they've got Moses, they've got the prophets, and they won't listen to them, then why should they listen to someone if they rise from the dead? We, we, it has been fulfilled in history. It will be fulfilled at the end times. But how does Christ change things? That's the question. How can we sit here today in church and read about God's judgment and hear about God's judgment through Christ. Simple as this. What did Israel need? They needed someone to to intercede. 
Someone who would cry out to God and plead with God for mercy. Did you spot that? 7 verse 2. When they stripped the land clean, I, Amos, cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. 7 verse 5. Then I, Amos, cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. You've got this man, Amos, just a man, and he's interceding with God, and he's pleading with God, Lord, if you marked our transgressions, who could stand? Lord, in your anger, remember mercy. Lord, forgive. There's no grounds for forgiveness. We're just small. But please stop, Lord. Please relent. We need an intercessor. But most of all, we need God to be merciful. Verse 3. So the Lord relented. 7 verse 6, so the Lord relented. It's not an inconsistency in God's character to God to relent. For God to relent is just his willingness to express his mercy and to postpone his wrath for another day. For God to relent is just an act of pure grace. He must punish sin and he will punish sin. And we need an intercessor. And we need God's mercy. Friends, come and see. Come and see. Come and see the king of love. See the purple robe and the crown of thorns he wears. Soldiers mock, rulers sneer as he lifts the cruel cross. Lone and friendless now he climbs towards the hill. We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. And a guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. For us, Jesus was made sin. Help me take that in. Deep wounds of love cry out, Father, forgive. I worship, I worship, I worship the Lamb that was slain. Come and weep, come and mourn for your sin that pierced him there, so much deeper than the sin of the wounds of thorn and nail. All our pride, all our greed, all our fallenness and shame, and the Lord has laid the punishment on him. We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet, and a guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. Do you see how Christ changes everything? We need someone to intercede for us. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed the words, Father, Father, forgive them. And we need God's mercy. And in God's mercy, his wrath, his judgment was poured out In one time, on one person in history, his name was Jesus. And so if you worship the Lamb, if you've come to the cross and you're sheltering, you've taken refuge in Jesus, do you know what? As terrifying as God's judgment is, as fair as God's judgment is, as inevitable as God's judgment is, we're sheltered. We have hope. We have life. We have a future. We have eternity. We have heaven. Why? Because of Jesus. God is very patient with us. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to eternal life. But what happens when God's patience runs out? What happens on that last day when it's too late? No more time to listen. No more time to decide. My challenge for you is this. Do you worship the Lamb who was slain?
Do you worship the Lamb who was slain for you? Shouting under his cross, saying, thank you that that judgment, that terrifying judgment has fallen on him so that I can have life. It was Moses who said, this day I set before you life and death. Choose life. I preached a hard word tonight. And the Bible sets before us those two choices, life and death. And I'm pleading with you, choose life. Choose life in Jesus. Let me pray. These are words from Luke's Gospel. It was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two and Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his sacrificial death, his obedience, his willingness to take on your wrath, your judgment, your punishment. And we thank you, Lord, that you've warned us of hell. We thank you that you've given us so many warnings of the judgment day to come. We thank you that you're patient. You're patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Lord, send us out of here tonight with our hearts and our minds understanding and comprehending your right judgment so that we marvel at your mercy and your compassion and your grace. And Lord, fill us with compassion for those that we know and love and give us courage to talk about Jesus. Please, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name.